Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. Simon Mundy is a journalist and the moral money editor for the Financial Times. The FT's moral money platform covers and reports on the push for a cleaner and more sustainable world economy. He's the author of Race for Tomorrow, Survival, Innovation, and Profit from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis, published by HarperCollins and available for sale in 40 countries across the globe. He's based in London. Simon, we met in Seoul, Korea, when I was there with the late Diana Belmori to visit Sejong, the administrative city 90 miles from Seoul. You were interviewing Diana for the master plan she had designed for the then new administrative city. And we'll talk about that later. But then you took two years to travel to 26 countries across six continents to understand climate change, which, as you point out in the afterwards of Race for Tomorrow, in your words, how this race will play out as the effects of climate change continue to ripple through the planet will remain the biggest and most important story that I or any journalist of my generation will get the chance to cover. And that's just the beginning. Yes, exactly. I think, you know, I've always been been interested in, in climate issues, as, as many people have. But my focus as a journalist was, was not on environmental issues per se. I was a, a business journalist and, and foreign correspondent. But it increasingly struck me from this point of view as a reporter, there is no bigger story out there. And I think all of us have been paying more and more attention to climate change. But at the same time, it can often seem like a very intimidating subject, a very overwhelming subject. It's so huge. And it can also seem quite sort of dry and depressing and abstract. But increasingly, I began to realize this is fundamentally a story about people. And there are some incredibly vivid and colorful and compelling, often exciting, sometimes tragic, but always very gripping human stories at the center of this. And so I felt that if I were to write a book which really tried to do justice to that compelling human drama within the subject, then that could be useful to some people. So, so that was the logic behind the, the book. And I very much wanted to do it in a sort of old-fashioned reporting way, actually getting out on the ground, wearing out my shoes, meeting people, and meeting a very wide range of people, because that's inevitably the way you have to tackle a story like this. It does encompass every part of the world. And so I wanted to get to places on every continent and meet people from a very wide range of, of backgrounds. And so as you can see, having read the book, I mean, the, the diversity and range of, of people in the book is, is very wide indeed, because so is the range of people who are involved in what I consider, is, as you mentioned, it's the single biggest struggle of our time. And it's the most important story that I want to get to grips with. I hope Race for Tomorrow will inspire people to understand the urgency of finding solutions as books can. I thought back, of course, 
when you think of the environment, you immediately think of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which had such an impact. It was published in 1962. And then eight years later, we had the first Earth Day in April 1970, and then the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency. And there's been a few other books, and they really can make a difference. Climate change, of course, is such a global problem with environmental, social, economic, and political implications. But its worst impact will probably be felt in developing countries where people are dependent on natural reserves, agriculture, fishing, and forestry. How did you map out your travels? How did you decide the communities you would visit and the people you would interview? I started this project, I was based in India at the time, doing a huge amount of reading and phone calls and just trying to get a sense of what the big issues were. Um, And reading about individual specific stories and specific situations in certain countries. And so there was a balance between trying to make this a narrative that would be very compelling and diverse, and at the same time, making sure that it gave a decent amount of coverage to all of the really biggest issues. So the the book is is broken down into sections. There's a section dealing with the, the effects of melting ice. There's a section looking at storms. There's a section looking at issues uh, around farming. Um, and in all these cases, I wanted to find people and, and communities or businesses um, that had a really compelling story in their own right, but also really shed light on something that's a really important part of the story. So, for example, when I was looking at storms, the the part of the book that looks at storms, there's a chapter on Venice. So I went to Venice, which, as you know, is very vulnerable to to sea level rise and also the impact of, of storms that happen seasonally, leading to terrible flooding events. Now, Venice, as you might know, they've built this incredible dam, this, this, this protection system, uh, which can shield against this influx of, of water during these storms. But that system was also at the center of one of Europe's biggest ever corruption scandals. So that was a hugely interesting story to get stuck into and spend time talking to the, the man who, who was the, the visionary behind this system, who was so infuriated by the, the problems that it had, it had got into. I went to the Philippines um, to look at the impacts of, of typhoons there and the, the very, very complicated issues around climate justice that were raised by the situations, both at the global level, in the sense that we, as people in the rich world, are disproportionately responsible for the carbon emissions that are causing these problems. And yet, at the same time, the the impacts are disproportionately falling on people on lower incomes in places like the Philippines. So, so that was another very important chapter to have in the book. Um, and I also had a whole chapter looking at how the insurance industry, the financial industry, is responding to these issues. Because, again, this is something which is, is now at the core of the, the concerns of big businesses about the future of the global economy. This is no longer just an issue that concerns liberal environmentalists. It's also, for the most died in the world capitalist, this is now a core area of concern. So every part of the book, it sort of brings together these, these very disparate people and places, and it's all about getting onto the ground and meeting people. And, and it's not about my opinions. I think there, there is definitely a place for books which are polemics. There's a place for, for books which set out 
the argument of the author, the vision of the author for what needs to be done. Um, but that's not what this book is. This is, I'm a reporter. This is a, a book of on-ground reportage, shedding light on some of the extraordinary people and places that I encountered. When I read the chapter on Venice, I was thinking of how much Venice has always inspired poets and writers. And I went back and reread some of Samuel Roberts' poem, Italy, written in 1830, where he said, there is a glorious city in the sea. The sea is in the broad, the narrow streets, ebbing and flowing in the salt. Seaweed clings to the marbles of her palaces. No track of men, no footsteps to and from lead to her gates. The path lies o'er the sea, invisible, and from the land we went as to a floating city, steering in and gliding up her streets as in a dream. Beautiful. And then we, we read what you've written, that possibility. I mean, what is going to happen in Venice? As you say, you spent some time looking at that. Yeah, so Venice has, has always been vulnerable to what they call the aqua alta, the high water. These, these seasonal rises in the level of the water on which, of course, the city is built. But the severity of those events has been increasing with phenomenal speed. I spent some time talking to the head of the, the emergency management office who is responsible for monitoring these, these systems. And he just drew up chart after chart after chart, which just showed how, how desperately severe the situation is getting. I mean, it's just a, a different order of magnitude to the problems in the past. So the new system, I was actually there to see the, the very first time that it was implemented at scale. So it consists of a whole series of gates, which are buried beneath the water. Um, so they're pretty much invisible most of the time. But when they're activated, they one by one, they, they rise up. There's this series of yellow gates until they have cut off the lagoon that Venice sits on from the sea. So I had the privilege of actually being there to see for the very first time in history, the city of Venice cut off from the sea. And it does work. Um, the, the trouble is that it hasn't been tested in all circumstances, we, we don't know if, you know if there's a very, very strong storm. It's not 100% clear that it would stand up to that. But also in the long term, the sea level we know is going to rise and rise and rise. So in the best case, this system, it will protect Venice um, for decades to come. But Venice, as you know, is a city that has existed for many centuries, for well over a thousand years. And this system will not protect Venice for a length of time on that scale. And it's not clear that the, the future of, of Venice will last for very much longer. So I think the system that I wrote about in the book, it's an incredibly impressive system. It's got, it's got a very complicated story around it, you know, which involves the mayor of Venice being carted off to a police station and all this sort of thing. So it is an impressive piece of work. Um, and it's it's one of a kind, really, in the world. And it does have lessons for the kinds of interventions that will be needed in all sorts of coastal cities um, and low-lying cities around the world, including, for example, New York and Miami, which will themselves have to think very carefully about what kind of infrastructure they want to deploy to preserve the low-lying parts of those cities, or indeed, in due course, whether certain parts of those cities may no longer be viable in the long term. And there are some tough decisions that will have to be made. And 
perhaps at some point in the future, a call will have to be made on whether Venice is is going to be it be possible to protect Venice in its current form in the long term. But but for now, um, the system that has been has been built, the Mozo system, it it does seem to be working. And I think um, a lot of naysayers for the moment have have become a bit quieter. In terms of intervention and looking at cities, which of course have become quite unhealthy places to live, not only because of pollution, but poor transportation, visual pollution, and let's just call it kind of general chaos. So you spent time in Lagos, Nigeria, which is the largest city in Africa with a population of approximately 15 million. And Lagos has been identified as one of the top 10 global cities at extreme risk from climate change. Perhaps you can tell us what you found in Lagos. This was one of the rather extraordinary parts of my my travels. So, so Lagos is very vulnerable to to flooding again, and it's becoming this is becoming more um, more severe. It has been getting more severe. The um, it's to do with sea level rise. It's also to do with increasingly strong storm surges. So, as heat energy rises in the atmosphere, storms become stronger. So, these sort of swells coming in from the ocean also become stronger, and that was causing very severe erosion of Victoria Island. So Victoria Island is the the most upmarket part of of Lagos. It's it's the the home to to a lot of its most expensive real estate and offices. And VI, as people call it, Victoria Island was being rapidly eroded. So it's no longer being eroded because an extraordinary new project has been built. It's called Echo Atlantic. And it is the brainchild of a family called the Shaguri family, who are one of the most controversial families in the whole of Africa. They're of Lebanese origin. They've been in in Nigeria for for a very long time. They're controversial because they were very close to Sani Abacha, who was one of the most deeply kleptocratic rulers that Africa has ever seen, who expropriated billions of dollars for his own personal purposes um, from the country. But the Shiguri family are very keen to say, look, we are going to help save Lagos. So Echo Atlantic is this enormous expanse of reclaimed land. It's one of the very biggest projects of its kind in the world. It's it's almost the size of a new city in itself that has just been created by dumping enormous amounts of sand into the water to create this, this expanse of land on which one by one office towers are, uh, are rising up. So I went around Echo Atlantic with Ronald Shaguri Jr., who is in his 30s. He's the sort of scion of the family. And he was saying, you know, look, this is the sort of thing that needs to happen to protect cities like Lagos in the future. So Echo Atlantic is itself protected by this enormous seawall, which is one of the longest seawalls of its kind in the world. And it stands between the ocean and Victoria Island. Now, the problem is that further down the coast from Echo Atlantic, some communities, lower-income communities, are actually seeing what seems to be an increase in adverse effects as a result of the construction of Echo Atlantic. So Echo Atlantic is protecting the upmarket part of Lagos, but it's sort of pushed the erosion further down the coast 
to these this place in particular called Alpha Beach. It's a it's a fishing village which has seen a, a much worse uh, increase in erosion. So this story really raised a lot of complicated issues because when we talk about climate justice, there are issues around international climate justice between rich countries and poor countries, but also within communities. As we all try to respond to climate change, there's the question of whether we can do so in a way that will reduce existing injustices, that will that we can tackle the climate crisis and tackle injustice and inequality at the same time. But there's also the potential for our responses to climate change to actually deepen certain areas of injustice that actually, you know, in this case, it seems like a response to the climate crisis, which is aimed at protecting relatively prosperous people, could actually be having some adverse consequences for less prosperous people. It's a rather disturbing story in that way, and it's the sort of thing that I think is not unique to Lagos. We traveled with Deanna to Sejong. Deanna won a competition to design the master plan for the city. Her design includes this 2.5-mile continuous green roof that connects and united government ministry buildings. Her plan was based on having a flat city that was aligning building rooftops to symbolize the interconnectedness and unity between government, the people, and the nature of that relationship. Do you think this is sort of a model that could be copied that would help bring some of the justice and injustice issues together? I think that there is so much potential to take climate issues and also energy efficiency and issues around social justice on board. And I think this is something that people have long tried to do, um, but it hasn't always worked. So, for example, in, in London, after the Second World War, there was an emphasis on replacing the, the slums of the East End of London with high-rise um, apartment blocks, which were going to be safer and more sanitary. But at the same time, this killed, according to, to many analyses, this killed a sense of community and it actually led in many cases, they had a lot of problems with crime and so on. So I think a lot of care has to, to go into this. Um, but I think what's exciting is that more and more, when we look at how cities are being designed, when we look at how building projects are being designed, um, green issues and, and, and really thoughtful um, sort of science-based consideration of, of social issues um, are front and centre. And that has to be the case. But it's also um, the case that we we need to think a lot about the design and construction of cities um, and, of, and of buildings and infrastructure in general being done in a green way if we're to tackle the climate crisis, because an enormous proportion of the environmental impact and just the carbon emissions from human activities are associated with with construction projects. So, so I think it's it's exciting to see, and I think I think Diana was probably ahead of the curve in some ways in, in in really integrating those those considerations into her work. And I think more and more you're now seeing that happening across that industry, which which is encouraging. But of course, like all industries, it has much further to go.
there's several places in your book where you write about people who have been displaced. When we look at the United States, when we look at the flooding in, in New Orleans and the wildfires in Colorado and California, and yet people want to rebuild, even though people move frequently now and easily, they still have the sense of place. And a lot of times what they're doing to make a living is based on where they live. You went to places where entire communities were being relocated. You went to places where people had lived by the sea for generations and were suddenly being moved to the mountains. What does this do to people both psychologically and economically? There's a couple of issues that I'd like to mention there. So there's one story in the book to do with a place called Barangay 48. So Barangay 48 is an area of Tacloban that was devastated by Typhoon Haiyan in 2013. And ever since then, the local government was trying to persuade the local people to move into these new settlements which had been built high in the hills on the basis that they would be safer. And people didn't want to go. They're, they're fishing people. So they, they wanted to be by the water, of course. You know, being up in the hills was a problem. And also the, the move to the hills would result in the, the fragmentation of the, of the communities. Um, there were problems with access to electricity and water. When I spoke to the mayor of Tacloban, Alfred Romualdez, who's the, the sort of politically royal families of, of the Philippines, he said, look, with climate change, the response to climate change, we have to put safety first. But according to the people that I spoke to, I was actually there speaking to people as their homes were being ripped down around them because the mayor had, had sort of run out of patience and had said, right now this has to happen. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of concerns that this was actually unjust. They said, look, we can be the judges of whether or not we're willing to live with, with typhoon risks. They were convinced that a big driver for, for this enforced move was that the mayor wanted to develop this area uh, into commercial real estate and, and build more economic value that way. So there are some very, very difficult situations that come up around these responses to climate change, where on the one hand, you might see an initiative that's being proposed by a government where it says, you know, we are moving people and giving them new homes in the interests of, of climate safety. But actually, it can often be much more complicated than that. And when we talk about climate justice, I think we have to think about what's happening to, to these communities and how far we're giving them agency giving them the right to, to really have a say in, in their future. Um, and a second issue along similar lines was in the Solomon Islands, which is a country in the, in the South Pacific. And certain of the Solomon Islands, the lowest lying, the ones that are constituted of coral sand, are being very badly hit by sea level rise. And in some cases, they're becoming progressively uninhabitable. And something which came up again and again there, was that the people who were being forced to move and incurring heavy costs were having their homes destroyed. They were very conscious of the fact that climate change has been disproportionately driven by emissions in the rich world, but they had been receiving no support at all from people in the rich world. And they were saying, well, 
if there's to be any justice in this, I mean, wouldn't it make sense for, for people in Europe and the US and other countries um, to be helping us with this? Because we haven't been causing this. And I think that logic is becoming harder and harder for us in, in the rich world and our leaders to ignore. That was a very hot topic at COP26 last year. We have not seen yet anything like the level of support that anyone could seriously argue is justified. But that doesn't mean to say that that can't change in, in the future. And I, I hope it will, because we, we need to be taking very serious accounts of the impacts um, of, of climate change on, on communities. And migration, uh, forced migration, is going to be one of the big ones. Immigration. I mean, what are we going to do? What if Bangladesh is underwater? We already have all these issues, so what's going to happen next? You talk with entrepreneurs, and vintners are, of course, concerned about what climate change will affect their vineyards, and branding makes it difficult for, for them to move. I mean, how do you replace a French Bordeaux or Burgundy in the minds of those people paying extraordinary prices for the label when you know they could have wine from another place, but it just isn't the same? But you went to Chile and, and talked to someone doing some very innovative work there. Yeah, so I, I had an amazing um, trip through Chile. I was, I was very fortunate to meet someone called Marcelo Retamal, who's um, really a giant of the Chilean wine industry. And, and he helped me to meet 16 winemakers altogether that I visited along the whole length of the country, or almost the whole length. That must have been fun. You got to try their wine. It, yeah, it was it was a wonderful trip. Yeah, and I I, I tried I tried every single one of the wines from every <laughs> single one of them, um, from the Atacama in the north, the Atacama deserts, right down to the, to the mountains of Patagonia in the south. Um, so so a really extraordinary trip, and I chose Chile for that wine chapter because you really see the full spectrum of. Of, of changes and impacts in, in the wine industry. But it's happening at a, a global level. So we're seeing, for example, in Canada, winemakers are going further and further north into areas of Canada that would never have been considered suitable for wine production. English sparkling wines are becoming quite respected in the industry, which, which no one would have uh, imagined before. And then there are other areas which are becoming too hot or too dry. So in Chile, you see all of this. So in, for example, the, the Maipo Valley, which is the traditional heartland of Chilean wine production, winemakers are just having to deal with incredibly rapid changes in the conditions um, that they operate in. And it's very difficult to just reinvent the way that you make wine overnight. They're sort of doing, doing their best. Um, one thing that they have, which you know, you mentioned in France, you have a lot of winemakers whose brand is really deeply tied up with the particular area that they're based in. But Chile, that's not such an issue. I think a lot of international customers, they're not so attached that you know it has to be a Maipo or it has to be a Maule. So one thing that is available to the Chilean winemakers more than it is to say the French is to move, and they're doing so. So what's interesting is they're moving further and further south. So right down in Patagonia, which, you know, is, is famous for being a land of mountains and glaciers, um, but now you're having wine 
starting to be produced there. So I went to, to one, it's furthest south that's been tried so far, and it's been set up by Familia Torres, which is the big Spanish wine company that has a big operation in Chile as well. The, the chairman of, of the Torres business, he's really been very into climate issues for quite a long time. He's sort of been a, a bit of a trailblazer in the industry of paying attention to these things. And he was saying, you know, we need to be thinking long term. We need to be trying out these sorts of experimental plantations to make sure that we, we can see the direction of travel, that as some of our territories might become no longer viable for wine production, we're getting access to new ones. So they set up this um, this small vineyard, this small sort of experimental vineyard, quite deep into Patagonia. And they weren't really expecting it to, to bear fruit because it was seen as, yeah, let's have a go and see. But when I walked through there, I was invited to pick a few grapes off the vine and try them for myself. And yeah, I mean, they were, they were still pretty bitter, but the fact that you were growing grapes in that particular part of Patagonia, you know, at least as far as Torres are concerned, that told them that climate change was proceeding far more quickly than they had expected. But across the whole global wine industry, everyone's taking it seriously. And, and, and wine is so important because it's wine is something that um, you can get quite significant changes in the product based on relatively subtle changes in uh, in the conditions around it, in the in in uh, rainfall and, and in heat levels. In a sense, wine is sort of the canary in the coal mine. So you'll see the impact of climate change very early on the wine industry. That's why I wanted to focus in that chapter on, on the, the wine industry. But it's coming for every part of the agricultural industry very rapidly too. The Velvet Queen's a documentary that's just been released and unfolds in the mountains of Tibet, where Vincent Monnier, the brilliant wildlife photographer, and Sylvia Tesson, the French writer and traveler, spent time seeking to photograph wildlife that's often unseen by the human eye, including, of course, the snow leopard. David Attenborough, in his book, A Life on Our Planet, My Witness Statement and a Vision for the Future, published in 2020, points out that now 96% of mass of all mammals on the earth is made up of our bodies and the animals we eat, sheep, pigs, and cows. That all of the wild mammals make up only 4%. So since 1950, the wildlife population is more than half. What happens is we're eliminating this wildlife with climate change. And then when is our diet going to change, as this has so much to do with climate change as well? This is something that I looked at quite a lot in the book. Food is at the center of so much of this. So, so one big question that we have to, to answer is, are we going to be able to feed um, this still rapidly growing global population in an era where in many parts of the world, food production is becoming more difficult um, as rainfall becomes problematic, as heat levels become problematic. And then a second question we have to ask ourselves is how far our agricultural processes are actually helping to drive problem. So methane emissions um, from certain sorts of crop production and especially from beef production are a huge driver of this. We have over a billion cattle on this planet, um, which is 
you know, <laughs> a very, very different number to what how many would be there naturally um, if we had not domesticated and, uh, and bred them to this level. And cattle emit huge amounts of methane. That's also a big driver, as I write about in the Brazil chapter, a big driver of the deforestation in the Amazon. And I saw that for myself. I spoke to indigenous people um, who were trying to resist it and were being really put at risk by that trend. So what can we do in response? Well, there's a couple of chapters in the book that look at this in detail. Now, one looks at a very vexed subject indeed, which is genetically modified crops. It's a very, very controversial issue. I looked at this in particular in India, where I, I was working for some time as the FT's Mumbai correspondent. So in India, I, I spent time visiting farmers, understanding how badly they were being hit by drought. In, in one state alone, you've got thousands of farmer suicides every year, which are being driven, it seems, in large part by the worsening drought conditions, which are forcing many of them into penury. I visited a company in that state called Mahiko. Um, which is developing new forms of genetically modified crops, which are designed to cope far better with these conditions that are becoming more and more problematic as climate change takes hold. The problem is that it's not clear they'll be able to market them in India because currently the Indian government is very resistant to genetically modified crops. Now, why is that? Well, it's because there's a big movement against GM crops, which is arguing, for one thing, raising concerns about their safety. Although, as far as I can see, there have been no really convincing studies that have shown any grounds for concern about the safety of GM crops, but those concerns are raised by the activists. And the second one, which I think is more of a um, an interesting point is to do with the extent to which GM crops will give the companies that produce these seeds an excessive amount of power over the farmers who have to buy them. So it's a very, very vexed subject. And you're seeing very different approaches to GM crops in different parts of the world. So, for example, in the US, they're quite common. In the EU, much less so. We're going to see that debate become more and more intense as the existing crops that we have come under more and more strain from these changing conditions. But there's another chapter in the book which looks at this from a different angle, both from the food security angle and the environmental impact angle, which is fake meat. People in the industry don't like to call it fake meat. They have nicer sounding terms for it. But there are two sorts here. So there's a sort which is made from plants, um, so you've got some really interesting companies in the US. So I focused in particular on Impossible Foods, which was set up by a man called Pat Brown, who's a, a wonderfully interesting and charismatic guy. He, um, he's a, a former doctor and, and geneticist um, who became an entrepreneur relatively later in life than the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and so on. But he has turned this into a real bona fide unicorn. Um, it's headed for a multi-billion dollar IPO um, sometime fairly soon. And his whole plan, his, his explicitly stated mission is to destroy the U.S. beef industry. In fact, the global meat industry in due course. He thinks there is simply no need for us to be eating dead animal flesh when we can produce what he considers a product that is just as good and just as tasty from plants more cheaply in the long term with a much lower environmental impact. So it was very interesting for me to spend time 
with him and also you know, visiting the company, seeing its labs. But then I also visited another company in Israel, which has taken a, a different and in some ways much more futuristic approach to this, where they're selling, what they say they're selling is, is real meat. It's real animal meat. It just doesn't come directly from animals. It will, they'll take a cell from a, from a cow and they will grow it in a bioreactor into pieces of meat that can then be eaten much like normal meat and you know with, with muscle and fat and all the rest of it the beauty of it according to them is that you don't have for one thing you don't have any animal cruelty but also you don't have any of these methane emissions um you have a much more efficient use of of resources and in both these cases this could also be quite an effective way of managing the global demand for food in a sustainable way. Because if you have a limited amount of food, when you think about it, the more that we eat meat, we're actually wasting certain amounts of food, feeding those animals, you know, the total amount of protein required as inputs relative to what we get out of the food system would need to be higher. So all of these things I think are important. I think, you know, we're going to see a big growth in in alternative proteins um, of all sorts. The big question for this, as well as in other of these emerging industries that I covered in the book, is who is going to be the who, who are going to be the ones winning the prizes? Who's going to be making all the money from this? Because you know that someone is. It's just a question of who. Will it be the people I profiled in the book? Will it be their competitors? Time will tell. You came to Texas actually, and you interviewed brilliant and ambitious entrepreneurs working on clean energy. If the best and the brightest engineer scientists and other professionals are beginning to work on the existential climate issue, did you find meeting them that you had some sort of hope for the future, that they are young, that they're understanding what the transition will look like? You know, I've been asked often if the research in the book made me more positive or, or negative about our future. And the answer is a bit of both, to be honest, because on the one hand, seeing certain things that I saw in places like Bangladesh and Ethiopia and the Solomon Islands made me extremely concerned. It, it really made me wake up to the scale of the challenge that we face. But in, in the US, in China, in, in various places that I went to where I met um, some of the most exciting entrepreneurs tackling this space, that made me wake up to the scale of what we can do in response to these challenges and what some extraordinary people are already doing. So there's a, there's a wide range of companies from the US in particular featured in the book. So Impossible Foods, I just mentioned, um, in Texas, um, that's a company called Quidnet, where I visited one of their operations. Quidnet is, is fascinating in that if you saw project that I visited, you would think it was a shale oil drilling site. It looks much like it. It, it uses the, the technology. In fact, even the people working on it, their background was in the shale industry. But they're not digging the shale oil and gas. They are in the business of renewable energy storage. So what they do is they drill um, a deep hole into the ground. They pump fluid into it to open a sort of crack in the ground. And what they can then do is use this as a sort of battery. The way it works is that if you have, let's say, a windmill running, a wind power turbine um, generating electricity, you have excess electricity while it's running, and you want to store that so you can use it later on when the, the wind stops and you want to access that energy. So while the turbine is spinning, 
it drives a pump, which pumps this water underground where it is stored at high pressure. And then you close the, the tap and you store it there until you want to access the energy. Then you open the tap, the water bursts back up and runs a turbine in the process. Um, so that was just one example of how you have this, this ecosystem in the US, which I think is extraordinarily promising when it comes to delivering some of the innovation that we that we need to tackle this crisis. There is a lot of experience and, and expertise in various sorts of um, existing industries, which can then lead into these sorts of new breakthroughs in, in emerging industries. There's a huge amount of academic uh, expertise, you know, the, the, the best resourced, uh, and in many ways, the best universities in the world. And also there's this funding ecosystem, the venture capital ecosystem in the US is obviously second to none. So several of these companies that I visited, you know, I got the sense that they are really seen as hot stuff now by the people in the venture industry. So, you know, QuantumScape, for example, this is a next generation electric vehicle battery company, uh, LanzaTech, which makes sustainable aviation fuel, Commonwealth Fusion Systems. This is a company which says that it could be the first to put fusion power on the market, which would be this extraordinary futuristic zero carbon safe energy source. They just raised $1.8 billion a few weeks ago. So the money is now flowing there. I spoke to um, a man called Vinod Kozla, who for many years, I think to some people, he might have seemed like a, a quixotic figure to some extent, because he was very early to start throwing money into the clean energy space. And now he he has a certain swagger, I think, uh, it seems to me when I spoke to him, um, because now everybody else has realized that he was right to be focusing on this area, that the long-term uh, potential of this of this area is extraordinary. So now you have organizations like Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which involves people like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mikesh Ambani, as well as Vinod Kozla which is mobilizing really enormous amounts of capital throughout this. So seeing these things come together, I, I, I do find it exciting um, to see some of the technology being developed and being deployed. It is exciting. As I mentioned also, you know, in China, I saw some, some, some thrilling things there. I, I, I got, got to drive one of the country's fastest new electric cars before I hit the commercial market, this sort of thing. And I think that competition between the US and China in this field, I think the, the major economic powers now recognize that if they want to retain that economic edge, they will need to put all the energy they can into the clean energy space. So I find that exciting. As I say, we are not yet on track with it, with our response to the climate crisis as a whole. But when I visit companies like that, when I see the sort of innovation that are happening, certainly it, it gives me grounds for hope. You were traveling when COVID began to rage across the globe. Do you think by exposing the fragility of the planet, you know, that we're so interconnected, that it will serve as a push to governments and business and religious leaders to try to make changes? Thought of it two weeks after we were locked down in New York and the streets were silent. And I thought, we're just transforming into a new world. There's no point in looking back at what was. I mean, this is, this is the beginning of the transition. I was actually in China in January of, of 2020. 
um, when it was really getting going. I didn't actually hear. I was very busy. I wasn't um, paying very close attention to to the news. It wasn't a top news agenda while I was in China. As we now know, it was spreading through Wuhan. I, I heard about it when I was just about to get on a plane from Hong Kong to Mongolia. Um, and then while I was in Mongolia, the Mongolians started taking it very seriously. They closed the border, fortunately, after I arrived. And schools were, were closed while I was in Mongolia. And then I, I went to Chile from Mongolia, which, by the way, is the longest flight you can take in the world. <laughs> they are literally on opposite sides of the world. They are antipodes. Um, and it, it, it was possible to, to travel through the pandemic. You had to do a lot of a lot of tests and a lot of quarantines, but I was able to keep it going and actually managed to get to all the places yeah. that I wanted to go. I think to your to your question about what could be the implications of the COVID crisis for our perception of our fragility, uh, what we need to do in response to the climate crisis, I I do think that there have been some knock-on indirect effects from the COVID crisis, which have made people take a more serious approach to the climate crisis, actually. And it wasn't obvious to me that that was going to be the case. Um, You know, it seemed perfectly possible to me that COVID would just overshadow everything else and people would just completely put climate change on the back burner. That, That hasn't happened. I think if we consider the reasons why not, there's often a certain sense of complacency that people can have you know, we, we we have these relatively comfortable lives, which are extraordinarily privileged by the standards of history or even the standards of today, when you consider that most people in the world earn a few thousand dollars a year or less. But I think many of us had taken that, that stability um, and comfort for granted. And when we suddenly realized we found ourselves fearing for our health, we found ourselves deprived of things that we would normally enjoy, um, we actually felt bit less complacent, a bit less permanently secure and realized actually we have to take care of these things that we that we have. And so when someone says to you, you know, you need to think about the, the long-term stability of the planet, I think that that, that loss of complacency helped help those messages to get through in a different way. Another thing that I think is is relevant, which I mentioned in the afterword to the book, which which also gives me hope about the climate crisis is in terms of how people responded to the, the hardships that were imposed by by COVID. So, for example, now the lockdowns were very controversial, and yet they were very very widely observed. Um, and certainly for for the, for the early period there. They actually had very wide, widespread support. I mean, I'm thinking in particular in Europe, there were, there were studies of popular response to the lockdowns, and including among young people who faced relatively low personal risk from COVID. They nonetheless supported the lockdowns. They supported being deprived of these basic freedoms because they believed it was the right thing to do. Now, my point here, this is separate from the argument about whether the lockdowns were correct. That's not the point. My point is that clearly people in the modern world, including people in developed countries, are actually willing to undergo huge amounts of disruption if they think it's the right thing to do. Now, that really goes against a lot of the things that we've heard about the energy transition. People are not going to accept the energy transition if it will lead to disruption, if it will lead to higher energy bills. Well, actually, people are willing to undergo 
a hell of a lot if they think it's required, if they think it's the right thing to do. But I should say that I think that that doesn't mean that we can just push through an energy transition that is not just. We still have to think very carefully um, about how we will manage this so that it's not just a matter of regressive policy where people on lower incomes who already struggle with their energy bills pay the highest cost. That's not going to work. So bottom line, I think the COVID crisis showed us that actually people are willing to make sacrifices, but we have to make sure that those sacrifices are made in an equitable and just way. I know when former President Obama showed up at COP26, he was treated like a, a rock star. People stood up and clapped and wanted to take his photograph. But he pointed out that protests aren't necessarily going to help. I talked with someone when they had just come back from COP26 and a little bit discouraged about what happened. Do you think that some progress was made, Simon, from your book and your reporting? And the fact that we're seeing that all of this is kind of coming together, it's what we wear, it's the transportation that carries us from place to place, it's where we shelter, it's the food we eat. I mean, you know, you, you can't really separate yourself from, from any of it and climate change. Yeah, so, so on the protest issue, I think actually protests have had a huge impact. I think if we look at how climate change has risen up the agenda just during the time that I've been working on the book. So I I started working on the book at the end of 2017. That was sort of when I had the idea, started the preliminary research for it. At that time, it's it's another world now because climate change was, was nowhere near as high on the agenda globally uh, as it is today. This is before anybody had heard of Greta Thunberg. This is before she had done her first protest. I do think it's not only because of the protests that these um, this issue has risen up the agenda, but I think that's that's a huge part of it, arguably the single biggest part of it. I think especially when you have children and very young people marching for their future, it's very difficult to dismiss that. Whatever your politics might be, there is something incredibly powerful about that. And I think it's it's had a huge impact. Um and there was a lot of it at COP26. The, you know, the, the the protests there, I think, were on another level to protests that you'd seen at, at previous COPs. I mean, the whole COP itself was really of a different scale, um, the number of delegates. But I think the, the presence of those protesters definitely helped to add a sense of, of urgency to proceedings. But we have to acknowledge that it was not enough. Even if at the, the, the end of that summit, according to the International Energy Agency, even if every single pledge and every single target is hit under the existing pledges and targets, and as we know, targets and pledges just get missed almost every time, even if they were all magically hit, we would still have 1.8 degrees of global warming, which would be disastrous. Already at 1.1, 1.2 we are seeing some horrific effects. And not, uh, an extra 0.6 degrees of warming might not sound like a lot, a lot, but this is, I think we should think of 
this as being more like the Richter scale. Every 0.1 degree is is a lot, and these things can spiral. They can get out of control. So I didn't feel that there was enough of a sense of urgency at COP. I think we would need to see much stronger measures, much stronger commitments, binding commitments. We would need to see much stronger action, in my opinion, towards putting a price on carbon. I think at the moment, it's not the the actual economic cost of carbon, which is borne by communities such as you know many of the ones that I featured in the book, it's not factored into our economic economic system. It's not it's not factored into the costs of goods and services that we have. And until that's the case, I think it'll be a problem. So COP26, I think it was more productive than some previous COPs. I mean, some previous COPs have resulted in almost nothing. Um, so it was better than that. But if you measure it against the scale of what's needed, the scale of what's needed to shift the course of our economic system, and also just address what I keep on coming back to, this fundamental injustice of the fact that this is a crisis which is disproportionately driven by developed countries. Because on that, a lot of people will say, well, what about China? China is currently the biggest contributor to emissions on a flow basis. But if you look at the total stock of emissions that have happened over history, and especially on a per-person basis, the US and Europe are so far ahead. So we we cannot duck that responsibility. But at COP26, as a previous COPs, we have been ducking it. We have not been offering anything like the level of support that's needed. And there are two reasons why it's in our interests to provide that support to those developing countries, quite a part of it, of anything as soft and namby-pamby as it being the right thing to do. Um, But the reasons why it's actually in our interest to do it, one thing we need countries like India, my old home, to develop in a clean way, in a a low-carbon way. If they don't, we're going to see consequences for the whole planet. But they need that economic support um, to do so. And the fact that you know, they, they have large reserves of coal, for example, if they had to sort of leave money on the table for the good of the rest of us, after we in the West have already burned coal with abandon, then we need to share the costs of doing so. But the second thing, even apart from the impact of climate change upon us directly, is the second order effect. I mentioned migration earlier. Now, People are already on the move, as you can see in the book. Um, it's something which struck me very, very hard. This is the way in which people for millennia have responded to environmental change. We move from places that are becoming impossible to live in to places that offer us a better shot, a decent life. Now, most of that migration is always within countries, but a lot of it is going to be international. And what are the consequences of that for our, our politics? We already have a resurgence of far-right politics, nativist politics in the US, in Europe. And this has been stoked. Certainly, if you look at Europe, you look at the response to the Syrian civil war and the flow of refugees that followed that, which was in turn, by the way, it followed the worst droughts on Syrian record. And you look at how that was exploited by extremist politicians in England and France and Hungary, 
if we have truly catastrophic levels of climate change in poor countries, there will be knock-on effects for the rest of us in the rich world. There will be knock-on effects for our domestic politics. And I think that's something which we ignore at our peril. So COP26, better than previous COPs, but I think we all need to be taking these issues more seriously. And I hope that at COP27 and COP28, we will see that, we will see our leaders rise to the challenge in a different way. It's so nice to open the Financial Times and to see the lunch with the FT with someone like Vanessa Nakate, the the young Ugandian who's speaking up. And that really gives me hope. I knew when when we were going to have this conversation, Simon, that the problem would be kind of limiting, you know, how much we could talk about. I just hope that everyone will walk or bike to their local independent bookstore (laughs) and and get a copy of Race for Tomorrow. And I hope they will read it and then pass it along. And I know they can follow your reporting through the Financial Times and also on your website. You have a really wonderful... Thank you. Yeah, summonmonday.com. That's right. I was hoping we could do this in person in New York, but because of COVID, that's been kind of pushed back a little bit. But I look forward to seeing you in New York, Simon, and getting you together with more people so we can just continue to get this information available to everyone. Thanks so much. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. And thank you very much for having me today. (laughs) Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you, Simon. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.